what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. Hello and welcome to the Caregiver Community, where we are having conversations about the challenges and the joys of caring for our aging parents and for ourselves. My name is Jane Everson, and I'm here with my co-host, Frances Hall. Hello, Frances. How are you today? I'm fine. Hi, Jane. Great. Frances and I are just two of an estimated 31 million adults in the United States and many more worldwide who are caring for their aging parents and for ourselves. Today, we're going to be talking about the need for legal planning with our parents, as well as for ourselves as we age. Our guest today is Kimberly Huffman-Whitley, a partner with the law firm of Patrick Harper & Dixon in Hickory, North Carolina. She specializes in elder law and estate planning. Kimberly is a graduate of UNC Chapel Hill School of Law and is an active member of numerous state and local organizations associated with elder law. She lives in Hickory with her family, where she's an active volunteer in many civic organizations. Welcome, Kimberly, to the caregiver community. Thank you. Happy to be here. Many adult children of aging parents uh, put off having financial and legal conversations with their parents. Maybe it's because the issues seem really complicated and we don't know where to begin. Or maybe it's because we just don't want to think about aging and death. Whatever the reasons, I know these are difficult conversations to have. With my parents, for example, I was shocked to learn that when they were 80 and 75, they had not made any legal plans or provisions whatsoever. I know that you speak of five legal documents that most people should have. Can you list those documents and help us understand the purpose of each of them? Absolutely. Um, when people are doing planning, they really need to have a will, a durable power of attorney, a health care power of attorney, a living will, and something called a HIPAA authorization. And let me kind of go through each of those, and we'll talk about why they're important. Great. A last will and testament sets forth who is to get your assets upon death. That should coordinate with your um, beneficiary designations and um, uh, with regard to other assets just to make sure that, that your assets are being distributed as you want them. Another important part of a will is to make sure that you are in control of who is distributing your estate upon death. Um, you can pick a primary executor, that's the person who files the will and takes care of winding up your affairs, as well as a secondary. It is very important also if you have minor children or children who might not manage money very well or a child with a disability to set up trusts in your will, which is a, a pretty simple thing to do. Pick a responsible person to serve as trustee as well as a backup trustee, and that will ensure that they are protected, that assets are going to be there for them, benefits won't be cut off if that's an issue, and that everything is handled appropriately. The second thing is a durable power of attorney that allows somebody to make business, banking, financial, basically personal business decisions for you if you can't do that yourself. Those are very important documents, sometimes more important than a will, because if you become mentally incapacitated, no one has the legal authority to manage your assets. Now, of course, if a spouse is named jointly on a bank account, they can, he or she can access that account because they're a legal co-owner of the account. However, that rule does not apply with houses, vehicles, or any other jointly owned assets. So what, what happens if someone does not have a durable power of attorney 
a loved one ends up having to file an incompetency petition. There's a hearing before the clerk of court. A guardian is appointed, has to be bonded. They have to file accountings. It's typically a pretty extensive time-consuming and expensive procedure. A power of attorney takes care of all that, and it um, it removes the need to have that proceeding. So that seems like a pretty simple and straightforward step that everyone should have. Very much so. There are statutory forms for those documents, although it's often good to go beyond the statutory form and put extra powers in there. Often financial institutions are a little bit easier to deal with if the document's a little bit more comprehensive. But it's a very, it's a simple document, technically not very expensive, and it's an easy fix for those problems. Healthcare power of attorney is really the same type of document, but it deals with healthcare decision-making. Um, it becomes effective if two physicians indicate you can't make your own healthcare decisions anymore. That triggers the document. And then you've named a primary and hopefully several backup and successor healthcare agents to make those decisions for you. A healthcare power of attorney governs all medical decision-making, um, consent to surgery, treatment, medications, all of those things including end of life, if you do not have a living will, which is the next document we can talk about. It's called um, a living will or a declaration of a desire for a natural death. That sets forth your wishes in the event that you're terminal and incurable, persistently vegetative, or have advanced dementia. In the newer documents, North Carolina updated their forms in 2007. The older forms are grandfathered in, but the newer forms allow you to make more particular choices as well as to say you can set forth your wishes and then you can say that your health care agent can come in and have the final trump call, have the final control in a particular situation. Some folks like that because it builds in flexibility. Some don't. They feel as if the burden is shifted back to their loved one. And then the final document is called a HIPAA authorization. And can you tell us what HIPAA stands for? That's a great question. It's H-I-P-A-A, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. Um, basically, it's a, it's a federal privacy act that protects our medical information. It has created some issues, however, with healthcare agents or other loved ones getting the medical information that they need in order to act for their parent or for for whoever they're dealing with at the time. So a HIPAA authorization is a non-doctor-specific authorization that basically says, if anyone is acting for me under my durable power of attorney or my health care power of attorney, they have the authority to get my medical information. Is that pretty new, that HIPAA authorization? That's a good question. It is fairly new. Um, I would say within the last 10 years, most attorneys who do a lot of estate planning or elder law have been doing them. If documents predate that, you're probably not going to see them. Some, some attorneys still do not do them, but they're really a good idea and they can avoid a lot of trouble. What happens, though, if you have a situation that a parent doesn't have those documents in place and they reach the point of not being able to make the decisions either because of dementia or some sort of condition, degenerative condition, or death? Well, and that is often a very common situation. Unfortunately, folks tend to put these documents off. And then you often get in a situation where their capacity is very question, questionable. 
If that happens, whoever is drafting the document for you, first of all, they're probably going to ask for a doctor's opinion indicating that the person can sign. If the person cannot sign, then the child's job just got a whole lot harder because they are going to have to go through some kind of guardianship process, either a guardianship of the estate that allows them to manage the money and it brings in all the accounting and bonding requirements we talked about earlier, or something called a guardianship of the person, which would allow them to make medical decisions for their loved one. So it's It is much, much easier from an emotional standpoint as well as from a practical standpoint to deal with these situations early on when your parent or other loved one can actually have a calm, thoughtful conversation about what their wishes are, not only for their assets, but for their health care, as well as for their end-of-life decisions. Yeah, because at that point, when there is a crisis, boy, that would be a tough time to try to make decisions at that point. It is, and you often get into family conflict, and people are emotional, and it's just a very difficult situation. I imagine you also have spousal conflict at some points, too, where perhaps um, the husband is competent and the wife is not, or vice versa, and the children having to make decisions about that. That's a really good point. You know, and another, another point is one of the hallmarks of dementia, at least the form of dementia that a lot of folks have, is um, kind of a progressing paranoia. So if, if, if people do have a condition with a dementia component, they often cannot see that their children or spouse or whoever is trying to help them, that that person really is trying to help them. They are often afraid that they're being taken advantage of. And then the window of opportunity to have them ha- sign the documents and have the conversation, it just closes. Right. So really, as difficult as these conversations might be with our parents or even with our spouses as we all age, it really, really is imperative to do it early on. Very much so. And, you know, it's heartbreaking to get a call from someone where they have a parent who's in the hospital and they're barely responsive and they don't have any of these documents. And it's very difficult to tell someone I'm sorry, but they can't, they, they don't have the mental capacity at this point to sign. And it's just, it's very difficult for the family. Yeah. Okay, so let's go on the, on the other side of this, okay. that, that they have put all this in place. What do you do with these documents? Where do you keep them? Where do you store them? Is this some, one of these once, you know, once it's done, it's done kind of things? How sh- and how should they be filed? Those are all very good questions. With regard to the will, we typically recommend that the that the person keep the will in the safe de- in their safe deposit box or in a fireproof document box at their house. Uh, they really should not distribute copies. If you change your will later, it's not a great idea to have copies floating around for a number of reasons. The incorrect will could be probated. Uh, expectations could be set up, and then um, you can be um, kind of setting everything up for a dispute. So typically, the the attorney or whoever drafted the will should not have the original, neither should the clerk of court. And that's kind of a sea change from what we used to see maybe 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, that's what I thought. Right. A lot of times, people would not have their originals. And now, we typically think it's a better idea for them to have their original wills. Powers of attorney are a little different. Those probably do not need to be in the safe deposit box. In North Carolina, the durable power of attorney does need to be recorded for it to continue to be effective past incapacity. So it's really a good idea if you have one of those, go ahead and get it recorded immediately. 
You can have the original um, with you wherever you want to have it. You should distribute copies to your backups because if they are named as a backup, they really need to know it and they need to have a copy with them. Same with the healthcare power of attorney. I have even had clients, and I think this was a really good idea, who make copies to keep in their glove box or to take with them when they travel Mm -hmm. because if there's an accident, the people are going to know who they need to call and contact. The the second part of your question about, um, you know, do you do these and kind of put them away, particularly with regard to the power of attorney and the health care power of attorney and the living will, I think it's very important for people to have conversations with their families when they do these documents so that their family knows what they want, what they've done, who is serving in what capacity. It really takes the burden off the people who are serving it uh, kind of lends itself to family harmony as well so that you don't have one child who thought they were doing a particular job and now they aren't. So I think those are all very important things. Let people know what you've done and why you've done it. With regard to the will, if you're treating children differently, I also think that's a good idea because if you don't do that, that might be a difficult conversation to have, but if you don't have it, then you are really setting up a conflict position later on for your children to have to deal with after you're gone. And you're saying that if the if children are being treated differently in the will, then there needs to be a conversation to make sure everybody knows that. I, I, I really think that's a good idea. Now, there are certain situations where parents absolutely do not want to do that. But I'm a big believer in taking care of the issues on the front end rather than letting it play out on the back end and having everybody be surprised and have their feelings hurt. Mm. And the final part of the question you asked was, you know, do you put these away and then not look at them again? And, or how often do you need to look at them? Typically, I think probably every five to seven years, you need to at least go over and review what you've done Make sure that the people you've appointed are still the people who you would want to manage your assets or make your health care decisions, particularly if you did these documents when your children were younger. They may have grown up, and they may be able to fulfill some of these roles now. Maybe you named a friend or a parent before, and that particularly parent has gotten older, and they may not be the best choice for that role. So I really think they're fluid documents. They're not something you do one time and then never look at again. And what about if, I mean, we live in a really transient society. What if people move? People do move much more frequently than they used to, particularly with wills and the powers of attorney. You need to have them reviewed in um, the state where you have moved. The requirements from state to state for probating wills and for the effectiveness of these documents, they're becoming more uniform, but they are by no means uniform across the 50 states. Sometimes they're fine, sometimes they're not, so you really need to have someone take a look at them. So I I think that's really important. So if your parent is moving to another state to be closer to you as an adult child, not only should you be dealing with the residential and the medical issues, but you really do need to attend to update the legal issues, it sounds like. Absolutely. Baseball is back, and the Hickory Crawdads have an exciting season ahead. Join the dads for weekly promotions such as Dollar Day, Fireworks Fridays, and of course, Thirsty Thursday. The Crawdads will also host the South Atlantic League All-Star Game on June 17th. Regular season and all-star game tickets are now on sale and available at the Crawdads box office or hickorycrawdads.com. 
Earlier in the conversation, you mentioned a trust or a living trust, perhaps you said. What is that, and who should have one? A living trust is a document that you sign with yourself. You're the grantor or the person who sets the trust up, and you're also the trustee, the person who manages the trust. Most living trusts for estate planning purposes are revocable. That means they they can be amended at any time. They use your Social Security number. They're basically just like you. You can move assets in and out of them. And they will typically contain the guts of your planning. They will contain what your will would have contained if all you had was a will. Now, if you have a living trust, you still need a pour-over will, which becomes a two-page document that says everything I have that was not put in my trust pours over into my trust when I die. So why would you even need a living trust? Why would you consider doing that? Well, the, per- the main purpose of a living trust is to avoid probate and probate tax. Probate is the process where assets pass through your will, are listed in the clerk of court's office, and may or, not be, may, or may not be subjected to some kind of tax. Assets that are titled in a trust do not have to be reported to the clerk of court upon death, and they are not taxed with a probate tax. Now, in some states, you will see everyone have a living trust because probate is very expensive, it is time-consuming, the tax rates are very high. North Carolina, that is not necessarily the case. For instance, we do not assess probate tax on houses and land. We do not assess probate tax on anything with a beneficiary designation, such as retirement accounts, life insurance, even bank accounts that have a payable-on-death designation. Those are going to go directly to the beneficiary passing outside of probate. So for many people they do not need a living trust, and they certainly don't have to retitle their real estate assets in North Carolina in a living trust. So again, this might be a state-by-state assessment. It, It is. And the other point, I think, to be made is, in North Carolina even, there are some reasons that you really would need a trust. If you have property out of state... You definitely need to do a trust and get that out-of-state property titled in the trust because that avoids an entire estate proceeding after your death in the other state. If you think a child is going to contest your estate plan, that's another reason to do a trust because it's more difficult to contest that. And the final reason would be privacy. If you do not want anyone knowing what you had when you died, you can do a trust and pretty, pretty effectively keep it out of the public eye. Kim, as an attorney, you, I know, have seen lots of examples, uh, lots of times that families, parents, adults have done this right. They've gotten everything done. But you've also, I suspect, seen a number of times that it hasn't been done quite right. For those of us who are adult children, what advice would you give us? When do we have this conversation? And even how do we begin this conversation with parents? I think the conversation really needs to start probably when parents are in their 60s. And I think, I think the way you approach it is, you know, we want to make sure that we're all on the same page, that um, we all have what we need, and that everything is going to be taken care of the way you want it taken care of. Because we know that you want to be in control of what happens not only while you're alive, but upon death. And I also think it's a very good idea to the extent you can to do it as a collaborative effort. And as you know, sometimes that can't happen, but if siblings can be involved, have the whole family sit down and talk about this. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, 
you know, make it a positive thing that you want to be empowered and in control to the extent that you can be in control. And I think that makes it easier for everyone to think about. I guess ideally this is one of those conversations you have during a family reunion, you know, (laughs) you know, when everybody is together. Right, Christmas or Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) exactly, exactly. And maybe even talk about it as a group. My husband and I are updating our wills, and we want to make sure that you are doing the same. Right. Any final words of wisdom? We've talked about so much today, so many terms and so many concepts. Any any final words of wisdom or strategies that you would like to make sure our listeners hear today? I think really just plan in advance and plan early and to the extent you can involve your family in what you've done and make sure that they're informed. They know what you want, when you want it, and how they need to implement your plan. And I'm going to ask you one more time to list those five documents, and then we'll make sure that they are listed on our website, because I know we went over them in the very beginning, and my head was spinning a little (laughs) bit as you talked about them. So certainly don't explain what they are again, but just list them one more time, the five documents. Okay, there's a last will and testament, a durable general power of attorney, health care power of attorney, a living will, and a HIPAA authorization. And I like how you always talk about that what this really does is give control and choice to the person who's putting this together. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Kimberly, this has been a great conversation, lots of good advice. I know that I've learned a great deal, and I hope our listeners have as well. Thanks to everyone to listening for the caregiver community. Francis and I hope you have enjoyed and, more importantly, learned something today about caregiving and about caregivers. This program is part of the MESH network of online shows and podcasts. You may learn more about the MESH and check out the other programs available for free at www.themesh.tv. On that site, you may also send us a question or a recommendation for future show topics using the Contact Us button. We also encourage you to find us on Apple iTunes, where you may subscribe to our show and make sure that you receive all future episodes automatically. You'll find a link to the MeSH website on our ACAP community website as well. Francis, tell us where people can find out more information about ACAP. I'll be happy to. ACAP, uh, you can find out all kinds of information about ACAP on our website, which is www.acapcommunity.com. And that's ACAP that stands for Adult Children of Aging Parents. Um, You can call toll-free at 877-599-ACAP or 877-599-2227. Or you can email us at info at acapcommunity.com. Thank you. And thank you. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.